What does the word intentional mean for you? Intentional means on purpose. Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. Thanks for tuning back in. We've got a special episode for everybody today. This is episode 276, and we have Ted Schluter on the show. And Ted is an award-winning brand-building entrepreneur. He's the founder and CEO of The Grist, a Boston-based brand and marketing agency, and is, in the, and is a pioneer in the world of pre-exit branding, which we're going to get a lot into. Ted created, developed, and refined the branding for buyout method over two decades and has used it successfully on high-profile exits, including... Popcorners to PepsiCo and Embotics uh, to Swedish software enterprise Snow. He just launched his book, Branding for Buyout, which I loved because he uses the word intentional three times in the first 20 minutes. Highly recommend the book. And this episode and this conversation that Ted and I have is about a blind spot in the MA market, which is branding. And Ted is a, going to be talking about how increasing your EBITDA multiple is the way that your company's valued when valuing it through the lens of financial valuations. But branding for buyout is about how you're perceived to the market if you're selling to a third party. And increasing the perceived value your brand plays in the market can alone raise your sale price when talking to third party buyers. It's all about do you want the bankers and the finance people telling the story of your company and your brand to potential buyers. And Ted has a completely different angle at this entire process. His work is full of uh, branding for the future, looking at micro trends and positioning his clients as the authority in the space for the purpose of a buyout. Some companies will acquire others for their cash flow, but some companies will purchase a company purely for their position and their message in the marketplace. Ted, Ted thinks that this is the future of M&A. Listen to the interview to get a, a, a ton of insights as far as if you're looking to sell your company to a third-party buyer, what you can be doing now to position your brand for an ultimate buyout. Thanks for tuning in, and without further ado, here's my episode with Ted. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course, Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes. Ted, good morning. How are you? I'm doing fantastic, Ryan. How are you? I am so excited for this conversation because, uh, the audience has not listened to a couple of our other uh, out of the blue conversations that we've had. And I think they were scheduled for a half hour and they ended up lasting a long time. And I've read yeah. your book. You went through the training. We're like, oh, we got some stuff here. And I'm going to give a shout out to Renz for doing the introduction. And uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure he'll be listening to this. He met you. And I remember how you guys met over in Boston. But once you the listeners, give them your background, the cliff note version, and how you got to where you are today, and then we'll go back and unpack a bunch of it. Sure. All right. So my name's Ted Schluter. I live in Boston. I would probably self-describe myself as a career brand builder. So in the early days, in the early 90s, I worked for advertising agencies in Boston and New York and got to participate in some really cool 
you know, big global brand builds and campaigns for brands, you know, of all shapes and sizes. And when I was in my late 20s, I was naive enough or smart enough or stupid enough to say, hey, I think I can do this on my own. <laughs> I want to start my own business. And I did so um, in, I think it was 2001 when the dot bomb happened <laughs> and, you know, 9-11 happened and I started a business when there was, you know, there was absolutely no new business to be acquired. And I went from, you know, doing pretty well in a career job to grinding it out and starting from zero as a small business owner. Pretty tough times. I was going to say, why not? Let's give it a shot. Yeah, let's give it a shot. Man, what a, what a school of hard knocks that was. I ended up starting, building, and selling a small business called Crunch Brand Communications, really a small marketing firm, and then actually sold it to a company called Breakaway here in Boston, took a full-time job for a couple of years, and then decided to get back into the small business world for a really specific reason, and that was branding for buyout, which actually... The genesis of branding for bio was in 2006 when I worked for a company called Brass Ring. And in less than nine months, we repositioned, rebuilt their brand, and they were bought by a company called Conexa for $115 million. And, um, you know, people were popping champagne, celebrating, slapped me on the back, saying, hey, we wouldn't have gotten the valuation we had without your help. I'm like, awesome. Woo! This is Everybody's sweet. rich. <laughs> yeah, what happens next? And they're like, what do you mean? We're going to go play golf and go to the beach and retire. <laughs> You're out of a job. And I, you know, was demoralized. And then I really, it was like having an epiphany. Does anyone specialize in what I call pre-exit branding? specifically helping a company position itself in aggregate across every communication channel so that it's more appealing and valuable and relevant to the likely buyer. So in 2006, the kind of idea of branding for buyout was born. In 2012, I trademarked it and then began the long pilgrimage of um, learning about every facet that I could of the M&A world of buying and selling businesses until where we are today, talking to the founder, owner, operator of Arcona and, and a like-minded gentleman. I love it, man. And, and your book is awesome. I read it and uh, great stories in there. And I can't wait to pick apart some of those stories. And like said, like when I think about... Um, and we'll, we'll set up some context, too, for the listeners as we go through all this, just I, the conversations you are going to have about the industry, the inefficiencies of it, and just your and I's, you know, shared passion to help level the playing field and get these owners, you know, onto the game and into the game with the right tools. But, you know, when you were talking, first of all, a couple of questions. One for the, for the listeners, clarify maybe what do you mean by brand and branding for bio? And then the second question is, why did you do this and how was that different than the traditional spreadsheet jockeys that you and I talked about? You talk about in your book, but like, again, so what is a brand and what do you mean by branding by, for bio? And then how is that different than the traditional investment banking process? Yeah. Well, I'll say this. Um, for me, the definition of brand is the every single touch point of communication that you have with your business and how it represents itself with its name, with its logo, color, communication, words, text, images, that's your brand. You know, 
classic it's not, it's not necessarily it's not necessarily like nike it's like you're talking about company the overall brand how it is perceived it by the marketplace it's not like one product or something like that in retail yeah yeah i'll i'll, I'll further define that without going into a dissertation about branding of cows and barrels and like the <laughs> genesis of the word brand but i think that marketing exists predominantly to sell more of your product service or technology to a customer right that that's what that's the whole nature of marketing is to do that successfully to grow your business mm-hmm. The big difference with branding for buyout is not individually focused on how to sell more of your product, service, and technology, but how to look at the entire business in aggregate and say, that's the asset Mm -hmm. that we're trying to sell to a buyer. Mm -hmm. That's the asset we're trying to market to a buyer. That one difference is everything as it relates to branding for buyout. Because I haven't found anyone who's doing what we're doing. You know, 99.99% of the world is focused on selling more product, service, and technology. That's marketing business as usual. Mm-hmm. Branding for buyout is saying we are trying to determine the value and the perception or perceived value mm-hmm. of everything you've built all at one time and, and trying to figure out what the buyer wants Mm-hmm. Um, out of that and and presenting it in such a way that it it, it enhances value. And mm-hmm. just one further step is one thing we love to do is branding intent or branding the future. The last thing the buyer wants is to buy who and what you are today. They want to know what you're going to be in three, five, seven years and why that is going to affect their business, true of a financial or strategic buyer, What's it mean to them? And and that's where we really dig in and focus. So, and I, I love it. And I, well, there's so there's gonna be so much meat behind this conversation. So, the uh, tell the story or your example, like when you say like why you started doing this and you saw the problem, and you told the story in the book. And when I, when you and I first talked about, you know, the owner who's built this business and this legacy for thirty years, and then they're sitting at this table with all these advisors. And so, what what about that scenario? Did you want to oh. change? I love it. They can tell you're ready to chomp at the bit. You use the word unpack. This is going to be a big one. So I'll just I'll just say this. One, like you, Ryan, I'm a small business owner. So I think small business owners are kind of like a clan or a cult that understand that usually it comes with a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. I don't care if you built the business for three years or 30. You know everything about it. You put your own money into it. You put your friends, family, time on the line, and perhaps it's your greatest asset outside mm-hmm. of your children or family. It's it's 90% of your net worth tied up in a bundle. Mm-hmm. And you can tell anyone or anything at a moment why it's so great. Every rock you can lift up, you know everything about it, except for one thing. And by the way, you are busy as heck running it. <laughs> Um, and it takes a ton of your time to keep that sucker running. But often what I hear is the one thing I don't know how to do. And actually I don't have a clue about is how to sell it, which is dumbfounding when you think that most colleges, at least in the U S a lot of them focus. And we partnered with Babson on the book. They have tons of curriculum for how to start and scale your business, but virtually none on how to sell it. Yet that is the most critical moment 
that's where your value can be plus minus millions yeah, yeah, of dollars. Lots, lots of zeros if you know what you're doing. So just like Arcona exists to better inform and educate and help businesses intentionally build something of value and understand what the playing field looks like. Mm-hmm. Branding for buyout is another augmentation to say, you better put your story together in such a meaningful way to create value and you better market your business to the buyer as mm-hmm. well. So I feel like the business owner, the garden variety business owner is flying at night with no radar and basically lateraling the ball to other players to sell their business. And they're automatically at a disadvantage and a lower value by doing that. And, and let's talk about why. And like, so what is that? What is the typical experience? And then what is it that you're trying to change? So like you said, like, and another way to say what you said of, of like knows everything about the business. I had one, uh, one client that he said, it's like a submarine. He was actually in the Navy and he said, I think he was in the Navy. I, a little asterisk there. I'm not sure if it was the Navy that has subs or whatever. <laughs> but he said, "I was. it's like I'm a submarine captain. And he's like, I can put my hand against the bottom of the wall and I can tell if there's a click that's going wrong. No one else knows what that click is except me. And I don't know how to figure like how to that tribal knowledge. So it's that whole story, like you said, where all the touch points are of that brand. So explain the, ter- the typical situation when it, that the time that gets handed off, like you talk about, like, what is that situation now that you don't like? And how, how are you, how is the branding for bio changing that? All right. And I'll say this with enormous respect and lots of friends who are mm-hmm. really good investment bankers. Okay. So one, one possible and often likely individual that might be brought to the table to help you sell your business is an investment banker. And Often that investment banker's task is to encapsulate the story of your life's work, put it in a one pager for like a, you know, marketing material Mm -hmm. and a SIM, a confidential investment memorandum, call it a 40 page PowerPoint deck. (laughs) And I think that they are, you know, the good ones are exceptional at understanding the value baseline of your business, the financials, sales, ops, mining gaps, figuring out where mm-hmm. advantages are and who might buy you. Just A plus, right? Mm-hmm. The good ones. But at the end of the day, I think they're really good for running a process and leveraging you know, uh, their databases and networks of people who could buy you. Um, but where I see the miss is that they tend to be packaging you up and selling you in these discrete, finite objects one pagers and sims and often especially for smaller businesses i think they are packaging you up for who and what you are today they are not telling a future forward story that would get a buyer really excited and say oh my gosh i didn't think about all these different ways we could create value together mm-hmm. and you know the the story that's being told mm-hmm. um So for me, what's broken is brand and marketing, not having a seat at the M&A table, people not thinking about the brand in aggregate across every touch point as the opportunity to tell the story to a buyer group. Mm -hmm. And from what I've seen, pretty limited ability to market to the buyer groups through these discrete 
assets. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and what, what we can do, Ted, too, is like, and when we talk about marketing, because like, like you said, and I like how you preface it, the entire like comment is, we know, we both know really good investment bankers and brokers. You know, again, it's, I would call it the 95, 10, uh, 95, five rule that 95% yeah. of them are probably not doing maybe the level of service they should, but there's really good people out there doing good work. So the, they're good at running a process and that, that, that could be called marketing the business, which is essentially sending out 380 emails it's in contact points to line up you know, uh, NDA from a hundred and you know, it's, it's like that whole process that's marketing. And I'm putting in quotes for the listeners <laughs> because that's your, their definition of marketing. Yours is significantly different. Yes. So what, what, Ted, I wanted to like, I want to uh, set up and frame up the, the rest of this uh, conversation with a, a piece from our training, because I want you to be able to speak to it when, cause I want you to tell an example. Cause you have some wonderful ones in the book uh, on how this is actually put into action. So, if you remember in the training, we've got two definitions of how the, how people like perceive valuations. And I'm not going to get into all the jargons, but it was just this like concept that I love uh, helping people with. It's the intrinsic financial value of a business. And then there's the transaction value. And so the intrinsic financial value is truly just the, the value of your business based on the risk of the cash flow, kind of like you would value a cap rate from real estate or a bond or a, you know whatever it is. As of the cash flow, that's it. So million and EBITDA, you might say, well, what's the risk of the cash flow based on the operations and blah, 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 blah. Okay, well, it's this. Well, then there's the transaction value, which I love to describe. It always starts at that financial value, but like there, there could be a high premium placed on it because it was the, the transaction value comes from a buyer and seller and the purpose of the deal, closing the deal for the human reasons or the business reasons that someone would pay a premium or a discount, but it started as a baseline, essentially at that financial value. And so like the strategic value, a buyer might buy you for your customer base, your IP, and they were technically paying way above the financial value because of the reasons that the buyer has behind the scenes. And that's exactly what my dad and I did when we sold. We knew there was the market value. And so technically we've got a high multiple on our EBITDA if you look at the financial value, but the buyer technically only paid like a three multiple because of what they were doing with the asset. And so with that kind of context, you're talking about selling to a third party strategic buyer or private equity strategic buyer versus like an ESOP or an internal transfer that like you, you can't really necessarily 20 X the, the value to your manager because of how the valuation works. So like, I don't know if that context makes sense because I think you have nailed this process on the third party transaction value. It, it does. I'd like to, if you don't mind, ad, ad, address both. Yeah, go because for it. One thing that I've said to private equity friends, investment banking friends and whatnot is on the intrinsic value, um, on the, the, the financial value, I'm like, do you agree that the way you present the numbers can increase or decrease the value of a business in the eyes of a buyer? They say, absolutely. And I said, all right, so wait a second. You're not talking about fudging the numbers because that's a legal get thrown in jail. You're talking about the presentation layer of the numbers can increase or decrease the value. True or false? And they're like, true. Okay. So you're talking about perceived value in spreadsheets and numbers. How then can you tell me that you can't enhance the perception of the value of the whole business at large through every communication touch point and not increase or decrease value. And they're like, we totally get it. You're right. (laughs) 
you know, that makes sense. So what I think branding for buyout is, is, I mean, you could say it's an augmentation of the existing process. It mm-hmm. actually helps add value. I think it helps make an investment banker's job easier. Yeah, you're not talking about eliminating investment bankers. Or not in, not in the least. Yep. Not in the least. It actually makes it easier. It actually makes it more valuable. So it's a win on all sides, most importantly for the founder mm-hmm. or the owner of the operator. But, you know, for everyone involved in the process, the job is to increase the value any way you can. Mm-hmm. And then I would just use an analogy of real estate because I used it in the book. I believe that you could put an awesome paint job on a house. Everyone's the housing market is a great analogy right now. Because <laughs> right, right. <laughs> 100,000 over ask before it goes on market, right? But I think you can package up a house, you can stage it, you can put a you know, paint job on it, as they say, bake warm bread, cookies. No kidding. That's the that's the easy thing to do. What a buyer really wants is, oh my God, this house is actually meant to be a condo complex. And this condo complex over the next three to five years is going to be incredibly valuable to me because I have four other adjacent condo complexes. And now I have a region within this geography that I wanted to take over for very specific business reasons. I think the miss is that, and I chide my friends, I'm like, do you want a banker to tell the story of your life's work? I think you want them to tell a part of the story, but um, I think that we can add whole new dimensions of value with what we're doing and our process in conjunction with the other typical players that you might invite to the table for a successful exit. And let's, uh, uh, let's talk about like some examples that you gave in the, in the book. And because like, in like, I think about like out and I'll just, you can play on this story as you're telling yours is that like, so like with ours, there was like four predominant independent copier managed IT. It was mainly a copier business. There was a small percentage that was managed IT of our company when we sold, but like, we went through like, okay, who are the Canon resellers? Who's got the different product lines? You know, Canon's trying to get into distribution. So we kind of like understood the entire marketplace. And then we knew like someone wanted to get into the Minneapolis uh, location or the Twin Cities area into the heart of it. So this meant something to them. Someone else wanted to eliminate it, a competitor and gut it so that we, they could you know be the only people in here. So there was different things that different people wanted. Some people wanted manage IT and a new rebranding. Some people didn't. And we positioned and talked about it differently to everybody, but it was like this whole like strategic, it was very much in line. I didn't really know we were doing what you're talking about. Now you articulated it way better, but I think we, I think a lot of entrepreneurs naturally want to do what you talk about. I guess you've never known how So talk about like the example of like, when you're talking about strategically positioning a company into the marketplace, what do you mean by that? And what are things that you've done to make it different along the way as they're, as they're going to market? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'm going to probably touch on a couple different pieces of it. But one, uh, one is considering the, at the macro level what category you're in and what the category is defined as. And, and maybe I'll, I'll touch on B2B like tech in, first. I was going to say, are you talking industry or business models or is that kind of... Yeah, so like I, I'm not sure what category the copier slash managed IT services 
category was defined as for you, but in, in and I'm going to use B2B business to business technology for a second, yep. because analysts play a big role often in selling more of your technology. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Gartner, Forrester, IDC are some big names of analysts. And Gartner is probably the, you know, the big one from a market perspective. And they have something called the magic quadrant, right? Mm-hmm. You know, this branded magic quadrant. But what's fascinating is they strategically position companies of different shapes and sizes in categories and talk about the category leaders, okay. the up and comers or mm-hmm. what have you. And to draw an analogy back to the book, one of my clients, Wasabi, which is in the hot cloud storage space. So think of cloud storage is exactly what it sounds like. You need to <laughs> store a bunch of data somewhere. And, you know, uh, a, a good focus area is uh, video storage because video takes up a ton of data and storage. Mm-hmm. And Wasabi deals with customers in the petabytes, so really, really big data needs. And they realize that Amazon, Microsoft, and Google are the big three-ton gorillas in the space, and they dominate it. But Amazon, Google, and Microsoft are integrated Gen 1 cloud solutions where compute, network, and cloud are all bundled together. Wasabi had a thesis that we are going to be just the best-in-class on just the data storage. And we believe one day that there's gonna be a curated cloud where you're not beholden to an integrated stack of technology, but you might wanna custom build your own. And that we have built a technology that's one fifth the cost and six times faster than Amazon's S3. And again, remember this, this category is the cloud storage category as it would be defined mm-hmm. by a Gartner or what have you. What Wasabi did, which was incredibly clever, and I recommend this to anyone starting a business or even if you have a business, think about it. They, they really thought about the end at the beginning. What and a novel concept. <laughs> you guys do a great job reinforcing this. They said, all right, to create a category and get the recognition of an analyst is really tough and really expensive. But can we modify or create an adjacent category? And they did by calling it hot cloud storage. Hot cloud storage, which just means that the data is immediately retrievable rather than sitting on ice. <laughs> Little <laughs> side fact, Amazon's product is called Glacier. It's <laughs> a great definition and a great you know, negative for that, for that product. But they created a category out of the gates called hot cloud storage, named the company Wasabi on purpose, globally translatable, and the definition of hot, and built a category from the very beginning to take on, literally they hired me and said, we want you to take on Amazon, and we're a pre-revenue startup in 2017. I'm like, my God, what are we going to do? But methodically, built a category, built a, a modified category, and over you know six years' time, it built a juggernaut of a company, but they knew where they were appointed from the beginning. For companies that have been around for 20, 30 years, 100 years, it doesn't matter. I always think it's important to identify what category you're in 
really understand who's in the category, strengths and weaknesses. Can you modify the category? Can you add a new spin to what you're doing so you stand out in the category? And another big fact is I think a lot of people kind of limit themselves to thinking about domestic or U.S.-based buyers, you know, people in their backyard. Mm -hmm. World's a big place these days. Often the international community is a big market. And in B2B tech, sometimes a country might be two or three years behind or ahead of the U.S. They might buy a property to get ahead in their country or to take market share or what have you. I, I might have lost my way. No, under, no, I, it's, it's, it, I think, well, I'll, I'll keep this going because it, it's about understanding the marketplace. And again, like the reason I think a lot of entrepreneurs tend to naturally do this, but then, like you said, when they hand it off to the deal team, the deal team doesn't necessarily think like that on default. We're like, I mean, my dad and I was like, well, it's because you're constantly assessing the competition. Who's coming in? And going back to your point, and I'm pulling back, you know, like almost eight years ago now from our deal, but like the, IT, managed IT was converging, cloud services were converging, document management was converging, managed print and copiers. And so all of these things were mashing together at the same time at rapid speed. So like you said, it was like, we're constantly assessing where are we fitting into this puzzle? And I think a lot of entrepreneurs naturally do that. They're looking at their trade association magazines, they're talking to their peers. So they're watching the parts and, the, and they're watching the, the, the marketplace evolve. And that going back to that transaction value, positioning yourself in the eyes of the buyer, it's truly about understanding what does the buyer want and why and what is their strategy and how do we align our product or service to like accelerate their plan. And it's just th instead of thinking about yourself, you're thinking about the other person, which I think is you know, it's taking it to the next level just besides the marketplace. But how do they how does the buyer fit in the marketplace? Yeah, that's exactly right, Ryan. And and to build on that, I forgot, uh, I wanted to make another comment. Forget about the category for a second. Again, th this is really depends on what kind of business you are. It doesn't work for everyone, but I'm not going to use the uh, example of Brass Ring that was in the book. Brass Ring was known as a really expensive HR technology, you know, a digital job board. And they're like, we're so much more than technology. We have incredible consulting. We have a great outsourcing product. But all of our big clients like BMW and Ikea and all these companies that manage millions of people for workforce, they want a bespoke, you know, solve for their business. And it's, it's not a one size fit all. We need to be able to curate our solution for them. And they were selling technology and consulting and outsourcing in discrete silos within the business, one-offs. Mm -hmm. And we had a you know, thesis with them. What if you could encapsulate technology consulting and outsourcing as a bundled cell, as a bundled solution, and do so in a way where your clients can dial the knobs up and down according to what they want? So it's a really bespoke solution. Mm -hmm. We ended up calling that three-headed uh, solution cell um, workforce by design. Mm. And what was interesting is we had interviewed like 20 top-level, C-level HR execs. And at the time, they're like, oh, we're, all this technology is so complicated. There's so much jargon out there. You know, we need someone to like really help us through this jungle, you know, like a Sherpa or a guide to help us through 
as a hands-on consultant to get us to the ideal candidate to join our workforce. So we had this guiding principle of guidance being the number one need. Brass ring, follow our lead, allowed this tagline, follow our lead, allowed them to assume a leadership position without being number one. And then workforce by design and this three-headed solution cell allowed the customer to buy this multifaceted solution that they could customize any way they wanted, that was the differentiator in their space. Workforce by design wasn't really a category. It was an integrated solution cell when everyone was selling the pieces. So So sometimes there's a way to look at consolidating or saying, we're not just selling a product, we're selling a product with a process and a technology all integrated together that can be a big value add. Well, and what's so interesting too, from like, from the buyer's perspective, like when the question that I think a lot of people like probably have is like, why would this buyer buy us and overpay? And like, but the reality is if you really just like, if you do your best to shift your mind and put yourself in that buyer's perspective and in their seat and saying, they're trying to grow, they're working on their share price or they're working on their own EBITDA. I mean, everybody's solving for the same thing. EBITDA and valuation multiple. Like that's it. Like all the way up to the top of Apple and Amazon and Google and everybody. So like it all trickles down to the, if you if the people know that, then the the question is what is their strategic plan and is it going to be better for them to buy an asset and like deploy that at a, a, a mock speed throughout their distribution channels or their customer list or whatever it is or spend 4 years and way more money building it. And it's so interesting. And that's where like this whole multiple of EBITDA, it, it's different than what the intrinsic financial value than this, like what would it cost that buyer to build this, get the brand recognition? I mean, it's years and like just, it might be 20, 40, 50, you know, $100 million. And the company might only be, you know, technically on an intrinsic value worth 10. But they're like, but they're like, you, like you said, the, the whole positioning, like, well, they can't create it for less than X. So that's essentially the, the, the baseline price. Yeah. And you know, I'll tell you one way to add value to any business owner that's looking to sell their business is by branding the future. And I'll explain what that means. Without spending the time, money, resources, people to build your future, you can brand it. You can tell the story and actually create a roadmap of what the next two or three years of growth look like If you have envisioned that, you can actually put that on paper and share that with a buyer and they're going to like, oh my gosh, this is awesome. You've done some of my thinking for me and you're showing me what your vision and roadmap of the future is. Product expansion, new technology, you know, new key people. Um, I think that's often a miss in present day scenario that people are not branding the future and you can calibrate what that future looks like depending on the buyer needs by the way but that's where the real value is no one wants to buy who and what you are today they want to buy what you're gonna be well it's so crazy ted and like not only from a strategic planning perspective but a branding perspective but also from the financials so i can't believe how so few people i know that have like a forecast (laughs) like and then like god forbid they have like a forecast of like maybe it's an income statement it's like almost like zero percent chance there's all three financial statements but then they go and then you go 
All right, so like you've got a three-year forecast on your financials said, great. How are you going to get there, and what are you going to be selling to who? And they're like, well, the more of the same. It's like, oh, you've been, like, you know, you've been doing four percent growth, but now you're just randomly going to be doing forty percent growth. So it's so interesting. Like my 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 entire point of that comment is what you're talking about is just thinking about the future critically, and not only for your own business and like what your you know your mix of assets are that are your differentiators, but then how does the market perceive that? So you're kind of aligning your skills and resources with what the market values to give you some direction of where to go. Because I think a lot of people sit in these boardrooms instead and go, what should we do? And then just make shit up, not knowing what the market thinks of them or what the competitors are doing. Yeah, I, I think you got it exactly right. The only word I'd change is you said, think critically. I'd probably, to the benefit of Arcona, think intentionally. Yeah, there you go. All right. <laughs> about what it's going to be. And you're absolutely right. I also think... In your spare time as a business owner, really looking and paying attention to what's going on to the market, what's happened in the last three years or five years, and what's going on now, and trying to be a bit predictive, you know, skate to where the puck will be, not where the puck is, is the name of the game on value creation, because that's what everyone's after. And, and um, you, you had a couple other good examples to pull from skate to where the puck will be. Um, I don't remember if, uh, what the name of the companies were, but it was like a shoe company. I think was it a shoe company and like how they had uh, built out. Or... Topsider is definitely a story. Okay, but, yeah. um, maybe, maybe, maybe you got a different one, but I think it, maybe whatever story you think is, is relevant for the skate to where the puck will be, because I think it, what that helps people do is go, Oh, I understand what that means. And then, what I should be paying attention to and how that relates to what I'm doing and where I'm going. Yeah, for sure. I'm trying to think of uh, an example that I can uh, talk what was about. What was, top, what was the top setter one? Because it was they built out a they built out a just a different hot like there was was it golf shoes Topsider versus a, that? It's a great story. So Sperry Topsetter, I don't I, I might get my year wrong, but I believe they sold to Wolverine for 1.2 billion in 2013. Three years earlier than that. My friend Karen Pitts, who's in the in the book for the shoe brand Etonic, which is that's the one I wrote the book. Don't even remember it was Etonic in the book. But <laughs> well, uh, there's some changes in it, and it's and it's still a relevant story, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, well, I should probably talk about Etonic, but I got Sperry on the brain now, so I'll just talk about Sperry because it was a future forward thought. Sperry Topsider, you know, the, the nautical boat shoe had become on trend. So people were buying the shoe not for performance reasons to, like, not slip on your sailboat deck, but because it was cool. <laughs> so they were on fire. And I don't know, probably every college kid in America, anyways, was wearing Sperry Topsiders back in 2010, 2011, 2012. And they were on fire and growing like gangbusters. But the roots of the business were as a performance product. <laughs> Paul Sperry, the founder, and I believe he was from Connecticut, was walking on the ice, true story, with his dog Prince, his Cocker Spaniel dog. And he was slipping, the dog wasn't. And he had this inspiration, <laughs> flip, flip the dog's paw over. You know how dogs have little grooves yeah. in their pads on their paws? And he's like, I'm going to go take my pen knife and carve that into a piece of rubber and that's the wave siping, the patented wave siping on the bottom of a Sperry Topsider, which was the first. I never heard that. Ted. When I when I listened to that story, I was like, that is freaking awesome. <laughs> yeah, super cool, right? And Sperry, Sperry was smart, and they said, you know, 
at the time they I'm sure knew or had plans to sell and they had a lifestyle uh, they split the business into a lifestyle and performance and they had another group working on the lifestyle business again growing like gangbusters but they hired us to build equity in the performance side of their business the heritage side of the business because they knew one day pun intended the shoe would drop and the trend would end right so they said we need a big story for performance to enhance our value and as a fallback position is the way I would look at it. Mm. So remember like Brass Ring was selling discrete silos of technology consulting and outsourcing? Sperry was selling discrete silos of sailing shoes, power boating shoes, and knew that stand-up paddling was becoming popular uh-huh. <laughs> and that you know sailing and power boating are tiny markets, but stand-up paddling and, and kind of multi-water sport is an enormous market likely to generate a lot of revenue. Hmm. So what we did is first we asked them a question. Now, this is just language we made up. We said, if Nike can own the air, why can't Sperry own the water? Hmm. We, we simply asked them a question. Holy smokes. That was like rolling a, gren- a, good, a good grenade <laughs> into the room because they're like, yes, you're damn <laughs> right. We can own the element water. We can be you know, the Nike of the water, we, we started the business, we own the category, we can do this. So that was a very unifying aspirational thought. And then just like technology consulting and outsourcing became workforce by design, sailing, power boating, and multi-water sport became advanced water technologies. Hmm. We created a brand platform that said, you will create the most advanced water technology footwear on earth. And you will do that by telling the story to the customer of the inspiration behind the technology, naming and branding the technology, and then sharing the experience of them using the product in real world environments. That definitely added eight or nine figures to the, to the exit price to help them tell a comprehensive story and to add a big component of value mm-hmm. to what was already valuable. That's uh, that, no, that's a perfect story. And I think, like you said, where's the puck going? And so a couple of comments, and then I want to get into what does this actually look like from like the actual process and how this, how you do this. But um, what I was going to say is, uh, oh my God, I think I just lost it too. Um, oh crap. It, you know what? I totally lost it. Needs, well, it, it, was, I was, I was talking about, um, you know, this, the whole thing of strategic planning, it's so few people like understand, like, how are we going to reposition our like assets, whether it's people or technology or your differentiator and tie that to where the, the puck's going and where the industries are going. Oh, I know what I was going to say. So <laughs> there we go. I just had to talk randomly for, you know, like 30 seconds before something came to my mind. <laughs> so uh, so um, there was a story in the book, which I have experienced in real, uh, real life as well many times is. When you have, like when that future buyer, not only is it, are you trying to figure out where the puck's going from market trends and like the, just the overall strategy of the marketplace, but there's factors going on at the buyer that you, like, it's so interesting. People don't realize it's just a bunch of humans that like you got an executive that's running the division. He's got stock options. He or she has got stock options and different compensation plans. And all of a sudden, if like if they know that they need to like use my old example, they like a big huge uh, regional company needs to get into managed IT or needs to do this, otherwise they're behind. They're like 
they're going to go and try to buy companies. And if they don't get the one that they want, now it's emotional, right? It's like Sally or Joe has to go home to their family. And I lost out another deal and boss is looking over my shoulder going, you got to get this shit done. So like they need to go buy someone. And so, or they need to acquire the technology to get to their plan. So a lot of emotion goes on and a lot of individual decisions that seem ridiculous to the seller, but are just normal, like, day like working things going on in the bigger companies and so i think that's also a factor that you touched on in your book which i really appreciated yeah i mean it i'll tell you a true story about lead check in the book where maybe it's a different spin on what you're talking about but the buyer mentality versus the seller mentality and man the seller there's nothing more emotional than selling your business you think buying and selling a house is emotional what about spending 30 years building something from scratch and then trying to sell it so you can retire. I imagine that there's a little bit of emotion <laughs> woven into that narrative. But lead check was a fascinating story. It's a lead detection test swab that uh, a woman scientist, Marcia Stone, created, I don't remember how many years ago. And she did it for, you know, good purposes. Like kids eating lead paint causes brain damage, right? You need to determine if you have lead paint in your home. Mm-hmm. among other things. So she was the only one who had created a very easy swab that turns red if there's lead. Well, it turned out that the EPA passed a law that said that if your house was built before 1978, I believe the date's correct, you have to mandatory test for lead. Overnight, oh. that, EPA, yeah, overnight that EPA ruling took a $500,000 annual uh, gross sales company to 10 million instantly because it was a law for every general contractor in the United States to test for paint. And they were the only one with a product. <laughs> Such an awesome lottery ticket. Oh my God. Talking about lightning striking, right? <laughs> so my friend, Joe Moriarty, you know, parachuted into the business to help them manage the chaos of, you know, people saying, I want to buy your distribution for six months and Lowe's and Home Depot calling up. And, uh, you know, the long story short here is Joe helped them navigate in the short term. And within, you know, not a lot of time, 3M came knocking on their door to acquire the business. Mm -hmm. And as Joe tells the story, you know, the good cop from 3M said, we want to buy you. We're going to fly you out to, I think, Minneapolis, where (laughs) HQ is. And they sat down and had a nice lunch and you know, said, you know, we're really interested in buying your company. And the bad cop showed up and the bad cop says, we can replicate your technology, your distribution, your entire infrastructure in a matter of months. We know your patent's going to expire. Here's all the equipment that we can build everything a thousand times faster. We're going to give you a fair price, but you're going to take it. Otherwise, we're going to, we're, we're going to, we're coming just, after you. <laughs> we're going to take you out. And, you know, in that case, I think the emotional component that you added to this to this buying and selling of businesses, it's not only emotional, it's about leverage. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, you know, you as the seller are going to be outgunned by people who are far more sophisticated in deal structure, deal flow, negotiations, capital people. Yeah. All that. Yeah. yeah, You do need people on your side that can help you aid you um, where your gaps are and your weaknesses are. So I think, 
you not only have to manage emotions, you really have to understand how sophisticated the buyers might be. And you there know, was there, well, well, also a super good example as far as like the leverage and like the buyers dynamics going on. Cause like obviously 3M needs to get into that business for all the reasons that people are probably thinking of. But there was another example where you said that there was a guy that was bidding on companies trying to build out a division and he lost on two of them and he was just pissed essentially. It was a CEO that was telling, you know, the board's like, why aren't you executing your plan? And he's like, damn it, I'm not doing it. And so like he ended up overpaying for something that he might not have had all those other things going on. But let's move Ted to uh, like, if someone's sitting there going, okay, totally get it guys. Like, but what does this mean to me? Like, so where in the process does this apply? So like, you know, if someone's looking at selling, you know, is it one year? Is it six months from now? Is it four years? Like, and what is actually done mechanically along that, that process? And how does the, the tip, typical investment banker and CPA and attorney and stuff fit into it as well? All right. That one we'll unpack as we go, I think. <laughs> so I'll say specifically for branding for buyout, I believe that the best horizon line is, and I say this based on the number of exits we've had, is somewhere between nine and 24 months of formally going into an exit process or trying to sell your business. And that's before and before hiring the investment banker and stuff like that, right? Like you don't need to, you don't need to have any of those people engaged yet because of how far out you're talking. I'm going to say yes, but I'm, I'm going to talk out of both sides of my mouth because I believe, I think like you, the whole process needs to be reinvented. The best case scenario is when you have a lot of people who know what they're doing are motivated to give you the best advice they can on how to position and build your brand for an exit in whatever horizon line or window makes the most sense. So in my mind, if an investment banker is involved at the get-go and can help identify potential buyers and strategy and establish that intrinsic value baseline, mm -hmm. working with a group like ours to say, and how do we really tell the story across the entire brand and through all the communication channels and market to potential buyers before they even know you for, you're for sale, yep. you're rising the value before a typical sell-side process has even begun. You're build, building anticipation, right? It's just normal human consumption behavior, right? <laughs> 100%, 100%. It also gives you enough time to really understand what the buyer strategic motivations are and to calibrate the business and brand in such a way that it looks really appealing. And we always say we run a bimodal track, work track. Track one is to sell more product, service, and technology and keep the growth curve going up mm -hmm. because you want to tell a story of growth. That's mandatory, right? Mm -hmm. and that's why marketing exists in the first place. Track two is specifically thinking about how to position for the buyer simultaneously with selling to the customer. Mm -hmm. And it's that intersection that becomes really valuable to the game. And, you know, I think Arcona and your business and the intentional growth platform is yet another key variable because you have to know how the game is played. You have to know how your business needs to be put together for an exit and you need a lot of smart people around you to help you do that to the best of your ability specifically for branding for bio it's nine to 24 months well and it's so interesting too because like when you to to add those components together we're like and again if you're if you're nine to 24 months out 
you're building the brand so the market can be listening and all of a sudden starting to pay attention to build that anticipation. But you're also building your financials and building the financial story and the operational story so you can hit that growth like you're talking about. And like even to your point about like getting investment bankers and CPAs and attorneys involved, you don't have to fully engage with them over that nine to 24 months, but you start to build your relationships, figure out who you want sitting next to you. And then, Hey, by the way, these people all know what I want and why. So that everybody's in sync, which happens. So very, very little. It happens that everybody knows exactly what the owner wants and why, because the owner usually doesn't. And so like, you're kind of, like you said, you got these tracks that are going along the, along the way. So then when, when someone says, okay, I might have changed some of my messaging. I'm getting attention from the buyers that I want to, and I've got my growth going on. Where and how does the process for branding for buyout happen when, again, so that, let's say I'm, I'm going back and I'm trying to sell. And I'm like, okay, now I'm sitting down with all the financial jockeys and then also the, <laughs> the CPA, the attorney, and then everybody's like, okay, now how, like, how do I avoid handing over my narrative to a team that is just essentially known my company for maybe nine months? So uh, that's a great question. And one, I would say to any CEO or whoever has ball control on the business itself, do not not participate actively in creating the narrative and the storyline for the business. I mean, you ultimately are that captain, that submarine captain. You're going to feel the vibration mm -hmm. in the hull and know something's wrong, right? Mm -hmm. You know everything. So I think that there, again, the best case scenario is getting together around the table, broad stroking the market, the macro trends, the potential buyers, and creating scenarios, prototype scenarios that say, what if we angled ourselves this way for this buyer group? What if we angled ourselves this way for this buyer group? What's the common denominator that works for all and yet still increases our value? Mm -hmm. You know? That, that, that's a really, you can't underestimate the value of that. And I'll give you an example. The CEO of Pop, Popcorners, Paul Nardoni, um, who's a serial entrepreneur, genius, right? Sold stirrings to Diageo, like the guy knows what he's doing. And Popcorners is like, it's, uh, it's a chip brand, better for you chip brand without all like the harsh chemicals of like Doritos, right? Popcorners and his thesis from the beginning was really big companies are hedging their bet on their product portfolio, like a PepsiCo that bought mm -hmm. them and saying, hey, we got a bunch of chemically laden food. We better start buying and acquiring some better for you brands, right? That makes common sense. That trend is coming. Further, sugary sweet was migrating to salty savory um, and Goldman Sachs was, you know, talking about that narrative. And Paul had built Popcorners to fit into that potential acquisition strategy, right? Hmm. He knew there was an opportunity there. But it's not good enough just to build a great company, which he did. He had to tell the story back to the house versus the condo complex. Mm -hmm. He had to tell the story in such a way that it would get Pepsi and other potential suitors excited about the acquisition mm -hmm. and you know um and that's what we did help him tell that story to get bought and then there was an urgency too he sold in december 2019 
for the last year or two before that, I wasn't just telling him, I was telling everyone I knew there's this historical graph, like every decade, something bad happens, right? We didn't know it was going to be COVID, but it happened. <laughs> timing, what if, what if he hadn't sold and it had been six months later? Would Pepsi have bought popcorners? Who knows, mm-hmm. right? But, you know, timing and macro trends are a really big part of understanding where the true value equation is, too. So, so you how do you, that- in, in that example, like, where you guys fit and the owner fits, so like the typical, and I'll start with maybe the typical example, and, and I'll touch on a couple of things that you mentioned, is one is that, you know, a lot of times owners and entrepreneurs don't understand as much about their marketplace or the potential buyers as they should until they go through the process because the investment banker goes, okay, we're going to take, you know, 200 private equity firms that have portfolios like this and here's what they're doing. So we're going to target them and we're going to target these hundred strategic buyers and here's why. And the owner's going, well, shit, I wish I would have known this like 20 years ago. I would have probably <laughs> run my business a little bit different. It's like, so I think yes. even to your point, instead of doing that 90 days before you go to market, like nine to eight or 24 months, you can be positioning. And I mean, you can make a decent amount of progress in 18 months towards fitting that narrative. Yeah. Fitting that narrative in. So I think it's so interesting, not only from the market analysis, but then also the financials and all the stuff that you and I talk about, where like, you're literally like, that's to back to your analogy of skating to where the puck's going to go. And so another comment on, uh, about what you were saying is that the normal process is data, build the data room, the financials and contracts and this and that, and then, you know, the IT data room or the, the IT systems and then the HR systems and all that stuff. And then the owner is just sitting there going, I, I feel like I'm going through a cavity search here and I've got no <laughs> control. And what is the point of this? And at the yeah. end of the day, like well, the typical process, investment banker sits down with buyer and it's about, you know, asset versus stock sale or well, how, you know, is it, you know, is it we roll in equity and it's all financial. But like, I mean, I went through the point of it was two entrepreneurs talking about the strategic view of our combined companies. And it's like so emotional and so strategic. And then the numbers have to fit together to fit the story. And so like, how do you make sure that the owners like leading that story or the brand branding and for bio conversations, leading the story, not being drugged behind the financial people who are just getting the deal done, like CFO to investment banker. Yeah. Well, I have this theory that AI is really going to be the great equalizer for data and intrinsic value. And that everyone's going to know the baseline with more accuracy over time. And just the baseline is the linear, no kidding. Of course, that, that's what the data says. Yeah, good point. Where the real magic happens is around ideas, innovation, and what I think is a more entrepreneurial approach to an exit. Don't give me the obvious. I want creative thinking. I want to think about partnerships. Where are markets going? Mm -hmm. What kind of creative solutions and spin can we put on our company so that it stands out first and foremost is intriguing and um, exciting for the buyer group? And, you know, how do we how do we tell that story in the most dynamic way? And, you know, just reading spreadsheets or PowerPoint decks ain't always the best way to tell a story. So, I mean, even a future forward video of where your company, you think it's going in the next two or three years is probably more exciting version of storytelling than, you know, a deck. And I would also just say that I think a lot of CEOs are, are really great CEOs because they know how to build, build and scale 
and hopefully sell a business, they're not always the best storytellers. It's our job to be like a human medium to extract from them mm. what they think the future is and then tell it because that's what we're trained to do is tell really good stories to influence people and and have them buy something, you know, and I think, again, this is probably repetitive, but getting as much information we can up front and then really shaping a, a powerful narrative absolutely will always affect the exit price. So do you have pushback from the egos of the other people on the deal? Like, okay, now Ted and his firm's in here. Oh, yeah. Now they're taking, what, what was that? Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, of course, right? We, we can tell the story your, better than you, right? Let's move on. You went to art school. You play with magic markers. You're a marketer. How could you possibly <laughs> add value to something as important as selling a business? You know, that's that's my domain. That's what we excel at. I just argue that every industry I've ever touched, which is, I don't know, probably hundreds of different categories, every single one of them I've seen reinvented. Mm-hmm. All mm-hmm. of them. Mm-hmm. And I believe that the M&A world is ripe for disruption. I believe the garden variety sell-side process is linear, non-entrepreneurial, color by numbers, and often mercenary, where the motivation is to sell your business as fast as possible so that I can get on to the next deal. Mm-hmm. One way to say it is, you know, I do a lifetime of deals, but for you, the business owner, this is the deal of a lifetime. Mm-hmm. Those are very different opposing viewpoints. Mm-hmm. So I think when you're looking to build your team of people to help you exit, having that entrepreneurial spark, you know, an entrepreneurial minded investment banker, an entrepreneurial minded CPA, and entrepreneurial tax person, all the people that you might want to surround yourselves with, you don't want the people who just color by numbers and, you know, say, we're going to speed dial you to an exit. That might not be in your best interests. Well, and it's, it's and, and I agree wholeheartedly, Ted. And I think, you know, what's so interesting too, is I have found that the, well, first of all, capital, especially in the last 18 months is abundant. It's everywhere. Right. And, right. and so you want some capital? You want some capital? Who wants some capital? But the uh, the the other comment is that you know spreadsheets and you know just looking at all your financials and that like there's so much heavy hitting firepower in this M and A space that all reside in that that I have and I and again this I'm almost just like literally thinking out loud but I, I have seen that there is a lack of vision on growth and strategy. And I, I, it's to the point where, cause I always default to that. I'm like, Oh, I didn't realize like, this is like, there's not a lot of people thinking strategically about the markets and where they're going. It's just get, doing deals. Like there's so many people just focused on doing deals, but like at some point, all this stuff has to come together and the whole companies companies have to still grow. So it's unique and it's different with what you're doing because it's like, because like you said, there's not a lot of people that are marketers and human psychology, you know, that are paying attention to markets that also understand the financial implications of them. I mean, it's like, it's truly understanding both of those is very, very unique at at this point in time, according to what I've seen. Yeah, I really think it's white space. It's a new category that we're going to dominate. Shout out to the guys uh, who wrote Play Bigger, which is about category creation. You know, I believe we have created a category in pre-exit branding that is completely new territory. Mm. And I I think that it's almost like, you have a beautiful room and it's like the best room you could ever imagine, but the shades are drawn mm-hmm. and we're telling the story of the shaded room with the financials and the ops and the sales. But 
What if we lift those blinds up, sun comes pouring in, then like the full glory of what you've built is there? That's missing. And like, everybody wants to do that. Who doesn't want to brag about the story of their company and where it could go? I mean, it's the funnest and, part about and it. You know what's also missing is actually digitally and socially marketing to the buyer groups before you're for sale, which is something we're very good at, is don't wait to start cold calling and knocking on doors and running a process. Start that as early as you can on short dollars. You can become omnipresent for potential buyers. Well, and one last comment on that, and then we'll wrap up. Is uh, we I actually had a guy on my show called Norm. His name is Norm Brodsky. He wrote Street Smarts and Bull Burlingham. And yeah. He, yeah. He. So I don't know if you, you recall this story, Ted. He uh, he talked. So he was in the paper storage business, kind of like competing with Iron Mountain. And I don't remember who he sold to. I know it eventually Iron Mountain ended up owning it. But he literally at conferences, he like would talk to his biggest, you know, all the buyers and the potential buyers or thoughtful, you know, strategy uh, strategic partners like you're talking about. He talked to him at conferences, and then he actually was one of them. He had quarterly calls with, the, with this big buyer and said, "If you, what would you want me to do to keep growing so you could buy me? So for like two and a half years, they had quarterly calls, and then they were like, okay, should we do a deal now? And it was just like, they just, the, the buyers were just telling him what kind of company to buy. And another, <laughs> it was just like, well, that's interesting and super like duh but obviously there's a lot of risks in that you know depending on the situation but another example on that is uh uh this gal was on my show i can't remember what her what her name was what show it was but the story is hugely impactful to me it was they she said what we did is for two years we're calling people that could be strategic buyers and then just you know having conversations talking to them enhancing the brand perception of the marketplace and then when they got to the buy or the the, the process ted she said, well, all we did was just tell those 30 buyers, strategic buyers, hey, by the way, we're running a formal process. And if you would like yeah. to participate, we're rooting for you. And I was like, yeah. oh, so interesting. Because then they had private equity and strategics. And it was just like, it's a, it's a lot of what you're talking about. But I think the proof is what you're doing is formalizing what other people are doing, either by accident or through gut instinct. Yeah. And I would shout out to Arcona and what you've built, as is witnessed by the lack of education in the U.S.-based education system on how to sell your business, you guys have created the curriculum and a lot of the backbone on the knowledge that you need to understand what you've got and how to prepare. I'm kind of at augmentation to that on the brand and marketing front. Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate that, Ted. And I, and I think, you know, to your point, I think there's like 1% of stuff is on the exit, like you said. And, and like the reality is like your story could unfold us infinite amount of ways the only way to have a little bit more control over it is through knowledge and again then then you can hire the right people and know how the you know like how does your puzzle piece fit in it's difficult to understand it unless you know the whole picture dude this has been so fun ted we got two two final questions uh the the last first one is uh what does the word intentional mean for you intentional means on purpose I love it. And by the way, when, when I read your book and I was like, oh my God, he said the word intentional like three times in 14 minutes on the book. <laughs> that was before we even knew each other. Um, yeah. last, last question, where can, uh, where can the listeners find you more about your company that buy the book, the whole thing? Brandingforbuyout.com is probably the easiest one stop just to get a flavor of, you know, the concept and the book is available on Amazon and the grist.com is the marketing agency that I own and operate here in Boston, that is my team of strategists, creatives, storytellers, and digital marketers that help aid in the methodology. Ted, thank you so much. This has been an absolute blast. 
You are the man, Ryan, and thank you for having me on the show. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. I just had an absolute blast talking to Ted. You could probably tell we could go for a long time. There's one huge takeaway that I want everybody to understand, and if you want to know more about this, go check out the intentional growth training that Ted and I were talking about. But the, the takeaway I want everybody to have is there this concept of intrinsic financial valuation versus transaction value. And so the intrinsic financial valuation is based on the financial valuation of the risk of your cash flow of the EBITDA. How risky is your cash flow and what is the risk that's going to be there tomorrow at the end of the year and in years to come? And then people are assessing it based on purely the financial asset versus the transaction value where it's going to start most likely at the financial valuation. But what is going to happen is there's a buyer and a seller, which are human beings, and there's a reason and a purpose for the deal. And what Ted was really getting into is that buyers that are strategic buyers, whether they're private equity or you know like a platform company for a private equity firm or someone in your industry that could be a competitive buyer, they have an emotional reason and or a strategic reason to acquire a company and your perception or the perception of your brand in the marketplace will heighten the emotions and the desirability of potential strategic buyers to acquire your company. But you always want to have that fallback plan of having the value of your company based on the, the exactly where you want the value of the company based on the intrinsic financial value. But if you're planning on selling to a third party, doing the work that Ted's talking about one to two years in advance, getting everybody on the same page from the investment banker to the CPA firm to the attorneys, whoever it is that's involved, that they're all telling the story of your company along with why your company has a healthy EBITDA, but then there's an additional premium that what you want to place on it because of X, Y, or Z. If you want to know more about this, this topic about valuations and deal structures and financial versus transaction value, go check out the Intentional Growth online training Arcona.io. We got the curriculum all out there, and you can either hire myself for four calls and it's two grand plus the training, or you can do it on your own for a thousand bucks, or you can find one of our channel partners that we've got that uh, do it in group format. Thanks so much for everybody for tuning in, and I will see you next week.